Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Dear people of God, the epistle to the Hebrews is really not an epistle, at least originally. It was a sermon by an unknown preacher to a community of Jewish, Jewish Christians in Rome in the first century. Like many of us, these early Christians found themselves in period of time when they were despondent and discouraged. The Christian life isn't turning out like they had planned. Persecution and turmoil from the outside, conflict and confusion from within the church, these things are coming together to cause some in this Christian community to reconsider their decision to follow Christ altogether. It seems that many had begun to abandon the meeting of Christians, the regular meeting for worship. Some are even plotting a retreat back to the synagogue, back to where things seemed safe and secure. Others seem to be wishing for simply a return to paganism. Somehow their expectation was that Christianity was going to bring them peace and comfort, but it hasn't panned out that way. In fact, things seem all the more complicated, all the more difficult since they've begun to follow Jesus. So some of them conclude if Jesus isn't going to take care of us like we thought, it's time to take matters into our own hands. Two weeks ago, when we looked at chapter 3 of Hebrews, we talked about the Christian life in terms of a play, an unfolding drama written and directed by God. And for most of us, like the Hebrew Christians, we were willing to follow the script of the gospel as God had written it for the first few acts because we initially trusted the playwright and the director. We sincerely believed that God knew what he was doing. But eventually, it looks like the story begins to spin out of control. Too many things are going wrong. And finally, in the midst of our fear and confusion, somebody whispers into our ear, the director really doesn't know how the play is going to end. You're going to have to ad-lib your own ending. And so like Adam and Eve in the garden, like the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness, we decide that it's time to write a new script for our lives, a script that cuts out the suffering, that bypasses the cross. We reason, if God isn't going to make me happy and secure, then I'm going to have to create my own unrehearsed ending to the story. Like these Hebrew Christians, many of us have come to believe that the story of the gospel was a comedy. Somebody might have promised us along the way, become a Christian and everything will get better. 
You'll become deliriously happy. Your marriage will become a success. Your children will obey. Your life will become tragedy-free. But as we look closer at the script, the more we realize that this doesn't seem to be the case. Sometimes the Christian life looks more like a sad melodrama than a comedy, filled with wilderness wanderings, trials and temptations in the desert, the silence of God, and finally even the cross. When the full sense of this tragedy hits us, that's when the tempter says to us, this play is going nowhere. All of this sacrifice and suffering is just making you miserable. It's time to write your own ending to the story. It's in the light of this kind of temptation that the writer of Hebrews begins chapter 4. And he begins with a grave warning. You ought to be fearful, he says, since God's promise of ending the story still stands. You have to be, ought to be fearful that you do not quit before God brings it to conclusion. Because God has promised a conclusion, what the Bible calls rest. But that rest will only come on God's terms. And we have to stick to the original script. For the preacher of Hebrews, the biblical concept of Sabbath rest is the image of where this story is headed. This is the end of the story of redemption, the climax of the, of the drama. And if we abandon this story written by God in order to write our own story, then we might be disqualified from entering into that rest. And so we're given warning. The illustration from the Hebrew scriptures is, is vivid. Remember the people of Israel. Remember how they were redeemed by God from slavery in Egypt. How after they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, when they finally came to the edge of the land of promise, they still failed to enter God's place of rest. Some of them wanted to go back to Egypt, thinking that slavery was preferable to all the trials and temptations of the desert. Others wanted to just camp somewhere outside the promised land rather than take the risk of following God to the conclusion of the story. And let's be honest, sometimes we find ourselves spiritually in much the same place. Far too often we have reduced the Christian message to one religious experience, to the experience of conversion, the reality of being rescued from slavery, but we're not willing to follow God the rest of the way through the wilderness to the fulfillment of the promise. Somebody said to me recently, when I hear Christians talk about their personal testimony, all I usually hear about is their conversion experience. It makes me wonder whether they actually have any experience of God after that. It's a valid point. If we read scripture carefully, we realize that salvation is more than just the powerful emotional experience of being rescued out of slavery. It's more than the miraculous drama of passing through the Red Sea. 
Salvation is following God the whole way through the desert before God finally grants us the place of rest. So the writer of Hebrews warns us, be careful that you will not be found to have fallen short. Be careful that you've not shifted from God's story to your own script for your own life. Because the compulsion to take matters into your own hands, to ad-lib your own ending, is the exact opposite of faith. Because faith is focused on Jesus. And Jesus is the author and finisher of the story. So for the preacher of Hebrews, one primary sign that we have such faith, the faith that brings us to the end, is our willingness now to enter into God's rest, to rest from our own works, to cease from our own efforts, and to enter into God's Sabbath. There remains then a Sabbath rest for God's people. For to enter the place of rest is to rest from your own work, the writer says, just as God did his. So then let us make every effort to enter into that rest so that none of us will fall away by their example of disobedience. When we think about the biblical expectation, the command to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, most of us, I suspect, groan inwardly. Far too often the religious communities that we belong to have used this command as a club to beat, beat us over the head, to force us to comply to ugly and rigid Sabbath-keeping rules. For some communities, you couldn't buy milk for your baby on Sunday or mow your lawn without getting excommunicated. In some Puritan circles, failure to attend church for consecutive Sundays could result in the death penalty. But the biblical vision of Sabbath rest is not some rigid legalistic restriction, some drudgery from on high. Sabbath rest is a gift from God. It's a blessing to human creatures. In the creation story, God himself rests from his creative labor in order to take delight in the works of his hands. And so the Sabbath for humanity is a day of restoration, a day that is full of joy. To take Sabbath rest is to be reminded then that we're created in the image of God. And it's a reminder that we are redeemed in the image of Christ. The rescue from slavery is inherent in the celebration of Sabbath. Slaves don't get a Sabbath. The seven days of the work week are seven days of work. But for redeemed people, for free people, we have the leisure to rest from our labors for one day out of seven. And the irony of the modern age is this. While most of us would decry the intrusion of a Sabbath day on our busy lives, we're very happy to self-impose the slavery of seven days of work in the name of being productive. For the sake of freedom, we think, we've become slaves by refusing to take a Sabbath. And all of this grows, I suspect, out of a deluded sense of self-importance. The refusal to rest betrays the belief 
that if we don't do something, it won't get done. Instead of imaging God by resting, we've chosen to be God by creating our own restless agenda. We tell ourselves, if I don't work seven days, we won't have what we need. If I don't do these things for my family, then it simply won't get done. If I don't stay on top of this marriage, it'll fall apart. And all of these statements reflect at the very heart a refusal to recognize that we're creatures and a refusal to rest. Because to rest is to trust that God is in control. We insist that we are a necessary part of the equation by refusing to rest, by refusing to back off and enjoy Sabbath. And in doing so, we commit an idolatry of self. Refusing to rest is driven by a foundational belief that God isn't handling things the way we want, and we're simply going to have to take matters into our own hands if they're going to turn out all right. Philip Melanchthon was a colleague of the reformer Martin Luther, and he was a tireless student of theology. After many consecutive days of theological discussion with Luther, Melanchthon said to his friend Martin, today we will discuss the governance of the universe. Luther responded, no, today you and I will go fishing and leave the governance of the universe to God. Authentic faith is a humble admission of our helplessness to run the world, our helplessness to fix the mess of our own lives by ourselves, or to shape our own destinies without the hand of God. And keeping Sabbath, entering into that rest, is an ultimate sign of that faith. God created Sabbath for his creatures to, be enjo to enjoy but also to remind us of our creatureliness. Sabbath-keeping is not intended to be a drudgery. It's intended to renew our lives, to invigorate us again, and to remind us of our place in the world. Remember Jesus says the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. Sabbath exists to give shape to our lives as redeemed creatures by introducing purpose and rhythm into our week. Sabbath reminds us to not take ourselves so seriously, to not see our work as a replacement for God's work. It reminds us that human life is more than labor, more than industry, more than mastery over our environment. Human life is also about trust. To take a Sabbath, then, is an ultimate sign that we trust God to take care of his world, even without us, and that we can rest in God's promises to bring the story to final conclusion in his way. Sabbath brings us perspective and clarity to life by reminding us that God is in control. This is a day that authenticates our place in the world and puts the world into perspective. It restores our vision of what God's kingdom is supposed to be like. When we enter regularly into God's rest, we're reminded that Jesus is Lord instead of our employer. 
we're reminded that it is God who sustains us, not our paycheck or bank account. We know that our safety and security is found in the kingdom of God as the defining structure of our lives, not in human politics or the devices of war. By resting in God, we're reminded weekly that the hope of humanity lies not so much in what Saddam Hussein does, not in what the UN does, not even in what President Bush does, but the hope of humanity lies ultimately in what God is doing in Jesus Christ. The Sabbath gathering should give us a regular assurance that God is in control over human history and that our value as human persons is not connected to our performance in the world, to our status in the world, but in the inalterable fact that we are created in God's image and renewed in the image of his Son. In other words, we begin to define ourselves in our world not based upon our changing and sometimes frightening circumstances, not based upon our fluctuating emotions, but based upon the faithful covenant that God has established with his people in Jesus Christ and that he promises to keep keep his promises. When we're gathered for weekly Sabbath, for this rest that God gives to us, we're provided a glimpse into the kingdom of God. We begin to see just in a small way the shalom, the peace or harmony of God's rule in the relationships that are developed in Jesus Christ. And when we worship, we should be learning to practice the values of God's kingdom. It's here that we should learn the principles of peacemaking and mercy. It's here that we learn to practice forgiveness and reconciliation. It's here that we learn to submit ourselves to the revealed word of God and to be reminded that Jesus is Lord even though it might look like the world is spinning out of control. In our Sabbath rest, we learn to live by faith and not by sight. The writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us that entering into God's rest in Sabbath is a signpost that points us to the full harmony and rest that God has for us in the new creation. And this writer suggests that our ability to enter faithfully into this celebration of Sabbath in which the word of God is proclaimed with power, this entering into Sabbath is indicative of our readiness to enter into the final Sabbath in which the rule of God becomes complete. To enter God's rest, the writer says, is to rest from our own work, just as God did from his Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest so that no one will fall away. When we cease from work in order to worship God, we're reminded that what we do is not the defining thing in the world. We are relinquishing our own sense of control and sovereignty over our lives And we're compelled once again to see God's work on our behalf and on behalf of the world. This is a vision that we desperately need. 
Eugene Peterson defines the Sabbath as that uncluttered time and space in which we can, dist- in which we can distance ourselves from our own activities enough to see what God is doing. If we're not able to rest at least one day a week, we're taking ourselves far too seriously. So Sabbath is that painful weekly reminder that we're not necessary. Worship is like prayer, and it's difficult for people because it it feels like we're not doing anything. It doesn't feel like action. But that is precisely the point. Worship reminds us that it is not our work, but God's work, that what God is doing is of supreme importance. Some time ago I saw a bumper sticker that could be the motto for Christian prayer and worship. It read, don't just do something, sit there. (laughs) A recent book on worship by Marva Dawn is called Worship, a Royal Waste of Time. To worship and pray on Sabbath is to finally get over ourselves and to recognize the need for God to be sovereign in our world and in our lives. Sabbath keeping is to learn to submit ourselves to a rhythm that's superior to our own routine, reminding ourselves that we're not the center of the universe. Calvin Miller points out that only those who obey a rhythm superior to their own are truly free. Sabbath also permits us time to shut out the cacophony of the culture's voices long enough to hear the voice of God. The preacher of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It can cut incisively between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, judging even secret thoughts and motives. And that's somewhat frightening. Perhaps our temptation to not keep Sabbath regularly is driven by our fear of the radical, invasive surgery of God's living word. We dread the intrusion of God's values into our own lives because that just makes things complicated. Peter Gomes, Baptist preacher at Harvard University Chapel, said in an interview yesterday on NPR that many contemporary Christians are feeling a serious disconnect between the demands of the gospel and the demands of our culture. In the end, he said, most of us simply shut out the word of God and cast our vote with the prevailing culture. It simply causes less conflict in our lives to join our voice with everyone else's. Several years ago, a mother talked to me about a dilemma faced by the fact that her son's sports activities were always falling on Sunday mornings. She said she was tired of feeling guilty about it. So she decided for the sake of her family, they would keep up her son's soccer schedule. I must have been feeling cranky at the time because I responded, that's fine so long as your your hope is that your son's primary identity be as a soccer player rather than as a Christian. Needless to say, she wasn't happy with my reply. (laughs) What I find interesting is this. Several years later, 
This same mother regularly calls me to complain about the fact that her son has no Christian character and no interest in the gospel. This is not simple cause and effect, and I'm not trying to guilt you into seeing the value of the Sabbath, but it does raise an important question, it seems to me. In the end, if we claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ, is it the word of Jesus Christ that shapes our primary values in the world or something else? Is our identity first and foremost as members of God's redeemed community rather than as a self-made individual, as our culture tells us? Do we see ourselves first as Americans and only second as citizens of God's kingdom? Can we even tell the difference? This week in the rising flurry of patriotic interest, I received several email messages offering t-shirts. One stood out. It said in large letters, Jesus saves, but the two words were crammed together and they shared only one S. All the letters were blue except the three middle letters. U-S-A. Who saves us? Jesus? The U-S-A? Have we reached a place where we're unable to tell the difference? The reason these idols are so tempting is because they're usually made out of good things. Patriotism, family, work, self And the voice of these idols in our society is loud and pervasive and compelling. How much more, then, does it become necessary for the people of God to take a rest from the noise of our culture, to hear, if just for a few moments, with clarity, the voice of God? How much more necessary does a Sabbath rest become for God's people? The call to Sabbath rest is radically countercultural. As people whose primary loyalty is to the kingdom of God, Sabbath is a way of pulling back from the things that our society says are most important and seeing them for what they really are, either good gifts from God, which have no meaning apart from him, or as idolatrous replacements for God, which demand our full devotion and, in the end, our very souls. By keeping God's Sabbath rest, we're bending our lives to the contours of God's rhythm for life and being shaped for service for the kingdom. Martin Luther again said, the spiritual rest which God insists for us is not only that we cease from labor, but much more, that we let God alone work in us and remind us that all our activity, in all our activity, we do nothing of our own power. Many of us are tired. We're tired of family crises that have no end. We're exhausted from trying to make marriages work. We're fatigued from trying to create meaning for our own lives. 
We're overworked from trying to keep up with our neighbors to have everything that they have. We're weary of a world filled with violence and terror. The writer of Hebrews wants us to know that the life of faith is a life that is learning to trust God's rhythm for the world, a life that is willing to submit to the radical surgery of God's word and is willing to trust God long enough so that we can rest and be reminded that God is at work. St. Augustine tells us that our hearts will remain restless until we come to rest in God alone. And so Jesus invites us all, come to me all you who are weary and burdened down, and I will give you rest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.